talk I want to give today is uh, uh, about concerns the book that I'm currently trying to write. I'm about halfway through writing it and still wrestling over how to frame it and also a few doubts about how interesting the audience is going to find it. So I'm going to test it out on you and you can tell me um, what, if anything, you find compelling in this. And it's, so it, basically, this is a work in progress for me. It's something that I've been working on uh, for some time. This relates to some fieldwork which I started on a postdoc fellowship in 1990, which is now 20 years ago. And so it wasn't my original fieldwork, but it's something that I've done in stages over 20 years. So basically I've been back to the same area every years, every three years or so, I think eight visits in total, and more than a year in total, but in stages. So that kind of fieldwork produced a different kind of, uh, different kind of intensity and a different kind of dynamic in the sense that I've been able to follow and track what I will describe as a rather dramatic process of transformation over a period of time and you know, repeatedly go back and figure out what happened next and what do people think about it, what did they struggle over, how did things which were considered absolutely unimaginable at the beginning of this process, ten years later, come to be discussed as if they were absolutely normal and had already been there, right? So sort of changes in people's horizons that I was able to track over a period of time. So what I'm doing at the moment is going back and rereading, you know, field notes and transcripts of interviews and so on from, from the beginning of that period. And it's quite striking to me actually doing that rereading, how, how far things have changed. And that's the, that's the story of transformation that I want to tell. So I've, uh, the provisional title of the book is Indigenous Capitalism. And um, I want to start off by explaining the puzzle, which I outlined briefly in the flyer for the talk, which is, um, concerns this place. It's a re relatively remote, mountainous area in Indonesia. And it, what I found there in brief was a group of highland farmers who, uh, at the beginning of this process, were doing shifting cultivation on ancestral land to which everyone had access. Um, who then began to effectively enclose and privatize and commoditize their own land um, in order to produce new crops, in this case, cocoa and clove for world markets. In the process of doing that, they uh, created effectively a new structure of agrarian classes in which some of them, by the end of this process, um, own all the land, the basic means of pr production, and uh, some people have been left landless with only their labor to sell. So this happened really in a, very rapidly in the period of, say, half a generation. Um, within 15 years, this is pretty much the pattern that had emerged. And so the puzzle is, first of all, why did they do this? You know, contra, it sort of flies in the face of many of the images and understandings that have been generated, especially about indigenous people as being embedded in things like community, sustainability, um, you know, risk aversion, um, you know, were, you know, careful to put all of their eggs in the kind of market basket, subsistence security, and so those kinds of ideas appear to be nowhere in the horizon. The question is, why not? Um, secondly, particularly in relation to Southeast Asia, you know, one has this rich literature about moral economies and shared poverty. Uh, also doesn't seem to be anywhere in the picture, and, and why not? And finally, I think for the, the most interesting big question is, not just why they did this, but how they could do this so smoothly with so little fuss. 
if one looks at the literature on you know, Polanyi, on the Great Transformation, or all of the social science literature on the emergence of inequality, this ought to have been a totally wrenching shift, you know, which leaves people discombobulated. And yet, you know, I actually saw people in relatively kind of prosaic ways from year to year negotiating and managing this transformation process. And at no point could one say, you know, this came from uh, another planet, right? It, it seemed to have actually lots of organic links with the ways that people were thinking and acting before, which makes us rethink, I think, our assumptions about indigenous people in upland areas and, you know, the assumption that they are naturally involved in practices which are the opposite from capitalism in every way. So that's the kind of the bigger picture of the puzzle. So I want to situate this then within debates about what is capitalism, um, what is agrarian class formation and how does it work, and specifically um, in relation to debates about Southeast Asia and you know, what's the nature of Southeast Asian agrarian economies. Okay, so for the, the first thing to specify then is why I'm using an optic or an analytic which focuses on the category of capitalism. Why capitalism? Um, for me, uh, you know, one, one way of explaining this is to say what are some of the alternative potential categories and why I haven't found them useful. So you know, one, way, one way of thinking about this might be to do with market, non-market. Right? That's one of the ways in which this kind of dichotomy often gets described. But um, in much of the world, and certainly in Southeast Asia, markets were always there, right? These people have been linked into markets for forest products and even for cash crops um, for centuries. They were producing tobacco, which was exported all around the Indonesian archipelago in 1820, according to Dutch archives. So, you know, markets are not new. Producing for markets is also not new. So if something radically shifted here, it's not that the market or thinking in terms of producing for markets is the novel factor. Nor, I think, is it really about globalization if one thinks about that as the kind of you know, increased extent of markets, because most of the products that they have, in fact, been exporting for so many centuries were destined for quite long distant markets. They were exporting non timber forest products, which went as far as China. Um, you know, tobacco, as I said, went all the way around the Indonesian archipelago and beyond. So even the, 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 the large spatial coverage of markets actually goes back a long time. Um, nor is, is it helpful, I think, to think in terms of, um, of this change, in terms of uh, what one could think of as the kind of the impact myth, as if you know, one has people who are happily doing their subsistence productions in the backwater, and as you'll see, it really is a backwater, um, and then suddenly something, capitalism, markets, sort of globalization, something arises from the outside, like, like a steamroller, and kind of you know, changes everything. Um, but I don't think that's actually the nature of the dynamic here. And I think what's really intriguing is how, in this case, capitalist social relations can emerge substantially from below and from within. And so that's why part of the reason why I set up the conundrum of indigenous capitalism in the sense of its kind of self-forming um, or locally formed properties. And um, finally, I think this is not about a shift in a kind of mentality. I think some of the writing about um, you know, in economic anthropology has, you know, has often relied on dichotomous schemes. And part of one way that that's often been framed is in terms of uh, an idea of a kind of a mentality, like profit motive versus 
you know, the absence of a profit motive or production for use versus production for exchange. But certainly um, that dichotomy doesn't work particularly well here. I mean, people will grow food, or in the old days they used to grow food. If they had surplus food, they were quite happy to sell it. Um, if they were producing a cash crop, they sold it and bought food. So those categories of kind of use and exchange you know, were, were pr very pragmatically adapted according to the capacities of production in a particular year and really don't represent any kind of great divide. So what I'm thinking of or what I found most useful as the defining feature of capitalism then, why I think this is in fact the pivot, right? the, the tipping point or the shifting point that really has to be identified and specified here. I take from a very useful definition um, of a scholar by the name of Ellen Meekson's Wood, who, who writes about the origins of capitalism, and particularly, um, which I think is particularly suited for looking at these kinds of agrarian contexts. So for her, the, the critical difference is between producing for market as a matter of opportunity. Like, here's an opportunity to sell something, make a bit of profit, that actually turns out to be a remarkably widespread practice, right? But market as opportunity then is, is long-term, it's widespread, it's almost everywhere. What's different is what she calls market compulsion. So it's the point at which um, you are compelled to produce for the market because, let's say, the extreme case is you no longer have access to the means of production, you no longer have land, so you are compelled to sell your labor. You don't have any choice about that. It's the only thing you can sell now. It's the only way you can sell a lot. That's, that's at the extreme. Let's say um, you know, you've planted your fields with cocoa, as in this case. Um, you know, you, you're pretty much, you have to sell the cocoa at the market price, and it's not that easy to withdraw in the short run you know, and sort of replace it with something else. You've, you've committed in such a way that your capacity to reproduce yourself from year to year is now going to be really tied into the terms of exchange of cocoa and the difference in price between cocoa and rice which you're going to buy in replacement, right? So you're caught into market relations in a way um, which has become compulsory. Because if you have a lot of land, you can do both, right? So that's not compulsory. You have your cocoa here and your rice there, price of cocoa crashes and you're still fine. So that, that would be not compulsion at that stage. You still have the opportunity of withdrawing if you don't like the terms of exchange. But at the point at which, let's say, your land is constrained um, and you can no longer do extensive self-provisioning, you're stuck into those terms of exchange, which of course greatly increases um, the capacity of people who control capital and credit and moneylenders and so on, also to dictate the terms because you cannot pull out. You're basically caught into that. So I, I found this a useful way of understanding like, what's the, what, what really is the difference? Like, how can we look in an agrarian economy at wh when has capitalism really taken hold? And so this isn't a definition which depends upon a def on, uh, um, the existence of what Marx called you know, free wage labor, because most of these people still have some land. So it's not as if you know, capitalism only fully arrives when together with landlessness. Um, but it, it deals with this kind of intermediate zone, which is the typical condition of agrarian people, you know, half a foot in the market, half a foot out of it. But how do we really understand when the dynamic shifts? That's the thing that I'm trying to puzzle out here. So how does this compulsion arise then? In the agrarian context, there's three main mechanisms which are often related. Um, one, the most common one in South and Southeast Asia, is debt. 
basically. A person then takes on a loan for purposes of consumption or production and then has to repay it, um, usually by mortgaging a crop. So basically, you know, because you took, a, you took a debt, you then have to sell your product at lower than the market price until the debt's recuperated. Because you're selling at a lower price, um, you can't make ends meet, so you have to borrow some more, right? It's like a sort of slippery slope. Debt is the key to it. And mortgaging land often comes into it as part of the same sort of debt mechanism. And eventually, um, selling land. Can't cover your debts, got to sell your land. So these are the ways in which, you know, you can tip between... Uh, being in control of the situation and being able to choose whether to sell to the market or not and actually being caught into cycles and spirals in which your exit is going to be on very disadvantageous terms. Nevertheless, that kind of description, I don't want that to stand in for an idea that there's something sort of automatic about this, as if this is all happening on autopilot. And I think what's you know, as if sort of capitalism has an internal dynamic which explains this. I think it's precisely the emergence of capitalism which we have to explain. Um, what are the social relations that are necessary or that have to be put into place so that mechanisms of debt, private property and so on, of exclusion, um, how, how are those social relations which are crucial to this whole thing actually formed forged and normalized, you know, come to be seen as normal, acceptable, you know, the way we do things. Always under particular historical, spatial, ecological conditions and so on, as Marx was the first to recognize. In his historical writings, it was never about autopilot. It was always about conjunctures, the specificity of how people were related to each other, to the land, to the resources and so on. And, and that's what you have to understand in order to understand how this dynamic emerges. So, um, okay, uh, so a lot of the, the story that I would tell then would be about how capitalism and its emergence is socially mediated, negotiated, and contested. Contested both in terms of what people regard as legitimate practice, um, just kinds of struggles over meaning which goes on, um, reinterpretations of tradition, uh, and certainly over entitlements and obligations, and most fundamentally, what constitutes proper conduct. It's not as if they were kind of moral before and kind of, you know, amoral now, but obviously there's a shifting sense of, of the proper way of conducting yourself in relation to others and how that gets shifted and negotiated as part of the dynamic. So um, that's sort of why capitalism. And then the second part, why indigenous. Um, in the case that I'm puzzling over here, as I mentioned earlier, uh, first of all, these mechanisms really emerge from within a local dynamic um, in ways consistent with local understandings. It's not the case that some agribusiness corporation kind of, you know, came along and forced people to do this. Um, enclosure of land was an intimate enclosure. It was, you know, me enclosing my land and excluding my siblings and cousins and second cousins and neighbours. You know, it was, it was a, really at an intimate scale. Um, and also indigenous in the sense that these people are not migrant. They, they consider themselves to have always lived in this place according to their myths. They, the original ancestors descended from a clump of bamboo on the top of these particular mountains and were the first people of the world. I mean, you know, typical kinds of thinking about indigenous people. Um, they don't see themselves as kind of migrants who came from elsewhere. Um, finally, until the 1990s, 
They were involved in practices of shifting cultivation on collectively held ancestral land and engaged in forms of labour exchange and ritual practice and so on, which are commonly thought of as kind of characteristic of indigenous people. Though, of course, that's not a term they use for themselves. They define themselves as people of the headwaters, hill people, farmers, you know, those kinds of terms. So I'm going to give you now a really quick visual tour of where these people are, what they look like, what the place looks like, and then I'll go more into my analysis. So for those of you not so familiar with Southeast Asia, this is a map of Southeast Asia. Um, and this is the area of concern here. So it's on the island of Sulawesi. Uh, that's the area. So it's, an, it's a rugged, narrow peninsula. Um, what my kids at one stage called the armpit of Sulawesi, like the underside <laughs> of the top arm of the island. Um, very rugged topography, as you can see here. Um, basically, no upland plateaus, um, just rugged mountains all the way, and virtually no coastal, coastal strip either. The mountains go virtually down to the sea, so a very rugged topography. You can see here from the colouring, all the kind of lighter yellow areas are areas which have been cleared for shifting cultivation. So the darker green like little remnant scraps of forest, but you can see that that mountain is actually quite densely farmed and settled all the way to the centre of the peninsula. So despite being extremely remote, and there are no roads up there, it's all foot, um, and there are no navigable rivers, so it's footpaths and, you know, that's the way. Um, nevertheless, it is quite densely farmed all the way to the centre of the peninsula. This is what it looks like from the coast. This is the um, house of what I would call the coastal elite. Not not that they're living in a mansion, but they have um, brick houses with two roofs. Um, this is from the first set of hills looking down to the coast. So that narrow coastal strip is densely planted with coconuts, which were planted on Dutch command around 1900, uh, 1910. Um, but, and this is a sort of related story, but over the period of years, the ownership of these coconuts has become highly concentrated. So two or three families own all of them. And in fact, most of the people living on the coastal strip in little tiny flimsy bamboo huts are squatters on borrowed land and laborers in the coconut sector. Um, but that, so that was the kind of story of the coast. But as you went up into the hills, until recently, um, these were shifting cultivators who did you know, access their own ancestral land. These are what some people look like. These are wooden houses that have been built relatively recently. These are some girls bundling up um, shallots, which is one of the old cash crops, uh, which was compatible with the Sweden cycle. So people would have rice and corn, and then they would also be growing shallots for cash. Somebody carrying, because there's no roads, you know, backloads of product going down to the market. This is a hill landscape about 10 years ago in the process of transition where uh, some, like these for example, are clove trees here, and some of this which looks kind of bushy is actually cocoa, um, but now this is all monocrop cocoa and clove. There's no more um, Sweden production in here. At this stage of the game there still was, and so these, these fields were at that stage still being used for rice and corn, but uh, you can see here in fact this X rice and cornfield already has cocoa growing up in it. So that process of conversion uh, was a thing which was going on throughout the 90s. And that's the, you know, the edge of a shifting cultivation field, corn in the front. 
Um, these are the cocoa trees, and these little huts are pretty much the houses that people had um, until the cocoa transition. There's some women weeding. This is pretty back-breaking work. It's kind of you know hands and knees. Some certain production under these conditions is pretty laborious. Um, those are clove trees. This is again sort of middle of the transition. Um, houses, bamboo, bark, bamboo leaf roofs. This is a new house built by a very successful cocoa farmer, this guy. This is um, the fruits of a windfall clove harvest. So these are people who, who, who got a huge amount of cash and immediately bought two TVs and three VCRs um, and built a nice house. Um, but uh, it's sort of an indication of the sort of the rapidity of this this transformation is that they don't really know what to do with it. And this is also something relatively new. Um, this guy is a cocoa uh, trader. Um, but I was really interested in this presentation because when I first knew him in 1990, um, Islam was pretty uh, absent in the hills. I mean, they were nominally Muslim, but they weren't very observant. Um, but as uh, he's managed to establish a sort of middle class standing, um, at the same time, his family has kind of Islamified their presentation, particularly for the point of perspective of a photo, hence the headgear and the rest of it. This is back on the coast, somebody, a coconut laborer. This is somebody um, processing sago, which is a famine food. Uh, used to be used during the severe droughts and famines, which, as I will explain, afflicted this area regularly. But this is actually in 2006, and the reason why people were going back to the famine food was because the price of cocoa was extremely low and the price of rice was extremely high and they couldn't make ends meet. So they were reverting to the old family foods, of which this is an important one. And that's the coastal strip where there's low-tech fishing. This is some, a quick view of one of the new roads which is being built up into the hills. They're only just starting. None of these roads really go more than one or two kilometers so far, but they will eventually do that the coastal market, and this is a little small town, and it's a Chinese shopkeeper. Okay, that's just to give you a little, we can open it again, just a little visual sense of um, the place. Okay, so to put it now then more in, uh, more in context and in terms of this debate about capitalism, um, in the past, these mountain people um, were not completely outside uh, regimes of extraction. Um, but the extraction of surplus which occurred from them was mainly by what one, what's usually called in the literature by non-economic means, in the sense that um, they had to pay taxes. If they wanted to be free to go down to the market to trade, they had to have paid up their taxes, otherwise they could be kind of you know, rounded up and so on. And they wanted to go down to the market so that they could buy salt and buy knife blades and sarongs and that sort of stuff. So basically, um, there was a taxation, and of course the traders in their forest products took a fairly major cut as well. Um, but this wasn't integrated into the system of production. Like Once you paid your taxes, you're still basically in control of your, your, of your own land and your own product. Um, they planted tobacco, as I mentioned, um, for several centuries, for two centuries at least. Um, they were chronically indebted to their tobacco traders, um, because tobacco is quite a fluky crop as well, it's quite prone if you get too much rain, it rots if you get, you know, it's, it's actually not that easy to grow tobacco. So a failed tobacco harvest 
would mean um, you know, having to be carried by your trader, and people were often chronically indebted, but um, they could give up tobacco and just move further inland and just grow food crops. So they were caught in these market relations, but not in, a, in an overwhelming kind of compulsory way. And similarly with the shallots, um, they couldn't actually take on debt for the shallots because shallots is an extremely tricky crop and no one would lend to them. So the mode of extraction there is that the traders would organize gambling at uh, the period of the shallot harvest and basically take everyone's cash back from them when they had just sold the crop. But at the end of the day, even if you've gambled away your money, you still have your land, right? So it didn't, there were these mechanisms of extraction, but they could not result and they did not result in alienation of people from their land or these kinds of compulsory relations which then you know one couldn't extract where, where people couldn't extract themselves. So um, the market as compulsion, agrarian capitalism in the way that I'm defining it, began with the planting of the tree crops in the in 1990 basically. So the first question is like, why did they do this? Like why go from your rather diverse system of food and cash crops? Uh, why go into uh, this kind of monocrop um, regime. And uh, one reason they did this was because contrary to images of kind of, you know, indigenous people in, uh, what was it, primitive affluence? Was that, isn't that Desalon's phase? Yeah. Or, um, uh, they regarded their lives as chronically insecure in the past. Um, subsistence, uh, or ri Sweden rice production in this area is very prone to failure erratic climate and the I don't know if you know of this phenomenon of the El Nino or these periodic very severe droughts which are quite common in Southeast Asia but every six or seven years there would be a catastrophic drought in which all the food crops died and because people did not have any stable relations with traders and patrons and so on basically no one was very interested in keeping them alive and these were terrifying times for them and, and in a lot of the kind of oral histories it wasn't a past of affluence which was described to me but actually one of, of real insecurity and fear generated by these periods of catastrophic drought and famine. Um, also this area has no education, they don't speak Indonesian even, um, no immunization, no health services, um, very high rate of uh, infant and child mortality, short life expectancy, um, and also a sense of, you know, when they go down to the coast, of shame. Can't speak the language, um, have ragged clothes, all kinds of ways in which these hill people felt um, very much like a, a sort of a pariah or an underclass and, you know, wanted to change their situation, wanted to become modern, wanted to have access to all these goods, wanted to be able to send their children to school. So they had a sort of transformative project of their own. There were things that they wanted to change. And that was the main reason, really, why they went into cocoa, because they thought that it would solve these problems. So one has to see that decision, then, in the context both of the kind of ecological situation on the one hand, which was insecure, and also in terms of the social hierarchy, which is absolutely... Uh, um, absolutely visible and powerful when you're there and you go around the market and you can immediately see like who are the backward mountain folk and 
and you know people despise them, look down on them, and so on. So um, that desire for change was also part of it. So that was why they did it, like how they did it. Um, basically, a simple mechanism. As soon as you plant trees on a piece of land, um, it, you regarded or they interpreted this as uh, a permanent enclosure. There was no sense that you know having planted a perennial later on in some future moment, um, you know, this land would revert into a common pool. Everyone understood right from the outset that unlike Sweden, where, you know, I might farm in this plot this year, after three or four years of uh, fallow, it might be my cousin who comes in next, which was the old Sweden regime, you know, kind of loosely circulating land access. Everyone understood that once you planted perennials, these were long-term crops, it effectively meant the privatization of the land. So, the first set of struggles then was over, well, who's actually entitled to plant trees where? Because everyone understood that the stakes were very high. This was effectively the definitive enclosure of the land. There were struggles over, new questions came up, like whose ancestors had originally cleared this plot of land? And there was an argument that only people descended from the first ancestors had the right now to kind of re-enclose it and privatize it. But some of these areas were cleared 200 years ago. No one really knows like, who cleared what part of plot of land, but a lot of the debate and the struggles took place in terms of uh, a sort of an argued knowledge about landscapes and ge genealogies and so on. It also took place quite viscerally, as in, I might plant my cocoa seedlings here, and you kind of hold your breath, and if three months later they're still in the field, tacitly, the other co-inheritors, you know, your cousins and siblings, kind of going to let you have it, right? But if you wake up one morning and they've been burnt to the ground, um, obviously not, right? So there was a lot of kind of quite visceral struggle in the fields over in this early process of kind of claiming and privatizing the land. Um, so that was the initial privatization. And almost in, very soon after that, within a year or two, land started to be bought and sold. So from privatization to commoditization, treating land as a commodity which could be exchanged for cash, happened almost immediately. Uh, people started to sell their land, uh, the land that they had enclosed, in order to meet consumption needs, food shortfalls, especially during drought years. There was a severe drought in 1997, and you know, my detailed land records show that whopping numbers of plots of land changed hands in that period. Anybody who had money to hand was able to buy up land for a song, and others lost it. Um, uh, uh, you know, weddings, illnesses, gambling again came into it. Of course, gambling now has completely new consequences because in the old days, as I mentioned, the worst that could happen is you could lose your money, but you still had your land or access to the ancestral land to farm again another day. But once the land is the commodity and you've gambled it away, you know, you're out of luck. So very different consequences to old practices. Um, it was also quite uneven. In parts of the hills where, where land was more constrained because there were other people in land further inside from you, maybe you were up against a physical boundary like a rock wall, um, you know, the struggles were more intense. In other areas where there weren't people immediately in land from you, you might fail here and have to sell up but you could try again you know, over the next ridge. So the intensity and the rapidity of the class forming process did vary in different parts of the hills. But by the time of my visit in 2006, um, basically no one 
who all the land had been claimed. And so the only way to expand or to start again was with money. You had to have money, you had to buy it, basically. Um, so the, the, the period of the open access frontier was over, which of course just intensifies the classroom aspects which are already going on. So um, how do people justify exclusion? I was interested in this question of what kinds of structures of feeling, what kinds of debates, like how did... How do you actually do that? How do you exclude your sister and say, you know, you, you can't plant here anymore, it's mine? Um, you know, how do people actually negotiate these things socially? Stop the flow of access, right? It's not, it's not that easy. These are, this is it's very intimate. These are kin, siblings, neighbors, cousins. Um, so one of the things that I saw emerging, and this is an absolutely classic kind of class language, was um, a new discourse around laziness, recklessness, failure to plan, you know, chronic gambling, that kind of thing. I mean, in every context of class emergence, you will have people who explain their success and other people's failure in terms of the kind of moral deficiency of the others. There was that kind of thing came up. Um, this idea that people had no patience, and so they weren't prepared to wait for the crops to yield, they were just kind of hasty to put their hands on cash and so they sold up. So again, you know, basically blame the, blame the farmer. Um, also important, I would say, is there's the phenomenon of hope. Um, E.P. Thompson notes this in his discussion of enclosure in England, where he shows that, in fact, many small-scale farmers did not oppose enclosure because they hoped to be the beneficiaries of it, right? They hoped that through this process, they would end up with a little piece of land to call their own. So rather than a sort of moral critique of enclosure, which says this is collectively going to be divisive and bad for us, everyone wants to do it. Everyone hopes that they will be the ones that get and hold on to a piece of land. So there was, there was uh, that phenomenon of sort of hope and uh, desire to be on the winning side um, also colored the sort of debate or lack of debate. There was also, I would say, a kind of process of deferral. Deferral both in terms of time. People around early, around 2006 would say to me, well, you know, it's true we don't have much going here, you know, people in their tiny little huts and virtually no land. But none of them were really ready to recognize that this was final. It was always, well, when my cocoa trees grow, and, and so they had, you know, 10 scraggly trees on a piece of land that was basically at this angle, you know, which any moment was going to slide down into the river. People were using tiny little nook and cranny spaces. You know, just, just the desire to be part of this new economy was huge, and a, and a sort of reluctance to acknowledge that actually you're not part of it. You know, you don't have land, you don't have trees, or except maybe 10. And you're not going to either, because in order to have them, you need capital now. It's no longer enough to be hardworking. You actually need capital, which you don't have. So that's sort of like the definitive moment of recognition, you know, was, was slow in coming, I would say. Um, people, of course, blamed themselves that if only I hadn't sold, you know, if only I had held on to it. Um, they also recognized uh, differences in... Um, Diligence, you know, for some of those people who succeeded, they said, well, 
he was absolutely true. This guy works really hard. And, you know, I mean, they, they, they were close enough to the intimacy of their household and others to recognize that there was an element of, um, you know, individual idiosyncrasy at work here. Because, like I said, if you look at this in 1990, they were all the same. So they all had access to ancestral land. Um, because there were actually small differences. And in the book, I kind of sort of try to trace out what some of those, how some of those differences became magnified. But the differences were minute compared to what they are now, where you really do have a class of landowners um, and a class of landless people. Um, okay, so um, that's the kind of local dynamic of it. Um, by 2006, um, as I mentioned, like the sort of land on the on the uh, interior frontier, all the kind of edge spaces was um, either already um, being farmed or certainly being claimed or already uh, changing price for high sums. Those roads, are, of course, are huge jeopardy in some sense because they were attracting people up from the lowlands, people who wouldn't have ever wanted to get into this when it was a matter of hiking. But at the point where you could ride a motorbike you know, up and visit your fields. So you started getting outsiders, people from the coast, people from the city even, coming with, you know, what in local terms were relatively large amounts of money and, you know, buying up land. So there was a, an external dynamic which came in. It wasn't at, there at the beginning, but it, it, it came along um, later and intensified things. Um, you also had, as another dynamic, um, some of the cocoa traders who... Uh, decided that rather than extend credit to everyone, including the kind of hopeless cases, you know, people with ten trees who were always indebted and could never pay up, um, that it was actually in their interest to advance money to some of the stronger farmers so that they could buy up the weaker ones. So intensifying the process of accumulation which was already going on, speeding it up, because it's much more convenient for the traders to deal with ten you know, reasonably solid, uh, reliable farmers than a hundred, you know, some of whom are kind of hopeless cases. And so they, um, they did feed money in which um, speeded up this process, although again, they didn't invent it. It was already going on. The process of accumulation was already going on. It's not a situation in which the traders actually want to buy the land because cocoa is, uh, you know, it's, it's an ideal smallholder crop. Um, it's very vulnerable to theft. You know, it's easy to walk into a cocoa grove and just, you know, pick the paws, right? So you really have to be there um, monitoring the crop and it requires kind of relatively consistent work and so on. So they didn't want to actually become landowners, um, but what they wanted was relatively solid farmers in place that, uh, that would feed the, feed the crop to them. So it wasn't, um, it's not the case that these people are sort of wholesale going to be evicted, uh, but um, a little bit different dynamic with clove, because clove only yields once a year. So you did have actually some large-scale ownership with clove, where some one trader in particular bought up hundreds of trees, because they don't really require any maintenance, and once a year at harvest time, he brought in gangs of workers from outside and just harvested his crop and went away again. So, you know, different crops also have quite different dynamics in terms of who they include and exclude. Um, okay, so that was the that was the situation um, in recent years. I was back in two thousand six and again in two thousand and nine. Um, 
what I also, I mean, everyone was very heavily indebted. Um, even the more successful farmers, some of them had, had debts which they'd taken on for acquiring land, but certainly all the struggling farmers had massive debts. Um, the terms of extraction were getting worse in the sense that the amount of um, interest has reached an average of 50%. So, um, you know, a squeeze was definitely going on. Um, in terms for labor were also worsening, and this is the tragedy of this situation, um, in the sense that uh, people who had become landless were not being absorbed as labor. Cocoa requires very little labor. Um, clothes are needed once a year. So uh, there wasn't a lot of work to go around, and people were adopting, to my amazement actually, um, herbicides. <coughs> Instead of hiring their cousins who were you know, needy and landless and living next door, they were quite willing to um, use herbicides to, to clear. Somebody had even bought um, you know, one of those electric mower things, you know, where you cut the grass. You know, so the, a kind of job which could have been given to five guys to you know, a day's work, a day's pay to clear a field had also been mechanized. And then with the advent of the roads, um, one of the main sources of labor which was carrying backloads of product was also um, moving towards the motorbikes there. So this is, this is interesting, right? And this kind of goes, again, it runs counter to, you know, Geertz's idea of, you know, infinite labor absorption of the rural economy, shared poverty, you know, making space for everyone, keeping everyone, you know, with at least some minimal livelihood, um, which is something that he argued had occurred uh, in Java, and uh, which one might expect to find, particularly in these kinds of uh, you know, relatively homogenous backwards places among these indigenous people. So why not? So this is the, sort of the real big puzzle. Like why, if one wants to put it in terms offered by Polanyi, like why no counter-movement? Why did what he called society not act to protect itself? Why were people so willing to treat land and labor as commodities um, when Polanyi says these are not really commodities, right? These are life itself, you know, and the basis of life and things which, which people would be very reluctant to treat in this kind of commodified fashion. Why no moral economy, a la Jim Scott? Why no shared poverty, a la Geertz? Why no subsistence security? Why not keep some land aside for food? Why go whole hog into cocoa and be so vulnerable through cocoa prices? Um, why sell up land? You know, why not think about the needs of future generations, right? I mean, there are so many things that they were not doing, which uh, I think um, obliges us to really question, well, why did we think they would, right? So all of our sort of expectations about what people like this should be doing and thinking really come up under scrutiny here. Like our expectations about how we thought people like this would or should behave when confronted with this new um, set of uh, not just opportunities but really significant risks. Why, you know, why didn't they uh, take a different tack? So I think um, what makes us surprised and what makes the trajectory that I've described puzzle is a kind of set of expectations which we have, and which I think anthropologists have actually helped to build, um, about you know, the non-modern or the non-capitalist, sometimes indigenous subject, 
embedded in forms of family and community life, which are somehow antithetical to all that capitalist stuff. Um, but I think what the question that's raised here is, well, what if those forms of community and family and kind of long-term horizon and so on, which we associate with these stable peasant communities, um, what if they're not the starting point of history, but in fact its outcome, or at least its variable outcome, something which might emerge over time, although it doesn't necessarily. This argument was made by anthropologist um, Bill Rosebery, among others, looking at this kind of uh, phenomenon, where he argues that the forms of family and community and the kind of stable, what we think of as the kind of modular, stable, middle peasantry, it, that we take as the kind of starting point of history, is actually the outcome, sometimes or not, as in this case. So that we have to really um, question what we think of as the starting points of these evolutionary schemes which posit, you know, indigeneity here, there, capitalism here, right? Or, or you know, market, all of, a lot of our vocabulary is, is dichotomous and evolutionary and it assumes we know what the starting point was and therefore we know, you know, what path would be followed or what path would be resisted. But in fact, we might be wrong about the starting point, about what people were doing before, you know, and how they understood um, their lives, their desires, and so on. And so that's the thing which I think requires more scrutiny. So to put this very briefly into I still have a, bit of time, a comparative context, um, you know, one of the kinds of literatures which I think which I've been reading and thinking about, um, some of it comes from my old supervisor in Cambridge, Alan McFarlane, you know, writing about um, the origins of capitalism in England and why did it arise in England and what relationship did it have to um, kind of individualistic family forms. Now he argues that um, in the 15th century in England, land was individually owned, it was regularly bought and sold, farm families were quite mobile, you know, they weren't actually sort of permanently embedded in these kind of you know, multi-generation, what we imagine as these English villages. Like when he looked at it more carefully, it turned out that there was far more mobility, buying and selling, um, than we had imagined. Also, in those families, children were relatively autonomous. They did not expect to inherit land from their parents, and they were basically expected to, to make their own way, you know, to go out as farm servants or housemaids or apprentices, basically to find ways to build up a little capital of their own so that they could marry and set up families and so on, but very much, you know, children sent out to find their own futures rather than this kind of, you know, solid family which is there and stuck on its land and will be, you know, from one generation to the next. Apparently not the history in England. He argues that this family form was the reason for the emergence of agrarian capitalism in England long before the rest of Europe. So whereas in um, parts of France and other parts of Europe, that kind of solid multi-generation family was in place, they didn't become entrepreneurial and capitalist. They did tend to kind of you know, stay put from one generation to the next. Children could expect to inherit from their parents, and parents couldn't sell land without the agreement of heirs. So a far more kind of static and solid sort of uh, peasant economy emerged compared to the one in England, which was far more dynamic, individualistic, entrepreneurial, insecure, risk-taking, and so on. Um, the historian Robert Brenner 
Um, Marxist historian Robert Brenner kind of gives another interpretation of the same facts and says, well, the fact was that in England, because uh, landlords had kind of grabbed up all the land, most of the small-scale farmers were in fact tenants. Tenants had to pay a competitive rent. The landlord's going to rent out the fields to the tenant who can pay the most, so therefore the most efficient and entrepreneurial. Um, if you, so you basically have to run your family farm as an enterprise. You have to be kind of competitive and cost-cutting. And that's why you have this type of family form in England, whereas in Europe, especially in France, where um, peasants you know, were kind of under their, under their lord, but they could not be evicted. So even if you had 10 children, you know, it wasn't a question of dividing the land. You know, it wasn't really yours anyway, right? And it wasn't going to be. So it, the stakes being very different. So the question is a bit of a chicken and egg, right? How do you understand this relationship that a certain class form and a certain kind of family form? But at least this comparative um, literature raises this as a question, right? So what, a, what, what kinds of um, social relations produce what kind of dynamic as agrarian capitalism kicks off in different contexts? So in the Sulawesi Highlands, the place that I've described here, um, definitely there is a very marked individualism. And this would take several forms. Women, children, women and children um, plant their own crops. So in the old days, you know, children would have their own little shallots and women would too. Sometimes they had their own food crops as well. So no kind of integrated family economy, basically a highly individualistic one. The goal of a successful parenthood is not to scoop up the labor of your children into an integrated family economy, it's to teach your children to be autonomous, to teach them to be hardworking, to understand the relationship between labor and reward, and set them free to find their own destiny. It's pretty much the view of it. And you can see how this fits very well in what was effectively a kind of frontier society, where given that there was still a land frontier, um, the, moral, the moral individual, the kind of the successful person, is someone who um, takes responsibility for their own life, you know, is hardworking, is entrepreneurial, doesn't hang around and depend on others and expect to be fed and taken care of. So it really, it really rewarded and admired um, that kind of uh, individual, entrepreneurial um, uh, practice, I would say. Um, to this extent, um, and this, this is, this is long-standing, you know, as I found by oral histories, one old woman way up in the back of those mountains um, told me about an example when she was about 12 years old, when she had planted her own successful crop of rice, which was a lovely big harvest, it was her own, and um, a man came by, wanted to sell her a little pressed metal box for keeping betel nut. And she told me about her sort of, you know, her sort of dilemma, like, you know, should she buy this or not? And her dad said to her, um, you know, that rice, it will soon be eaten, but this box here, you know, you'll have it for many years, you know, go ahead, right? But this is, an, you know, it basically um, what it emphasized was this child's autonomous ownership of her own labor power. She had grown this crop, and her dad didn't say, you know, keep the rice for the family. He said, you produced it? You want this thing? Do it, right? So I mean, this is one of many examples which showed that this kind of sense of an individual's ownership and entitlement to the product of their own labor, um, including children, women, and so on, is sort of quite long-standing. 
Another element of this is a dislike for subservient relationships, including those within the household. Um, parents are um, really expected to reward their children for work, paid them in fact. So a child who um, you know, is a diligent weeder of a family field is expected to kind of be, be paid or be rewarded. Um, and I discovered that people who were accused of being witches or thought of as being witches, one of their characteristics was that they had a sort of an unnatural power to absorb other people's labor. So somehow these were, these were usually men who for what people thought of as kind of unnatural reasons um, had all 10 of their children working like you know, busy little bees and never gave them anything. Didn't even buy the girls new blouses, right? I mean, this was regarded as the kind of, as a sign of, of, in fact, what for them was immoral behavior, which has to do with not recognizing other people's autonomy um, and trying to uh, exploit it and, you know, take advantage of it. So, um, like I said, a bit hard to sort of disentangle, you know, which comes first, a certain kind of family form or a certain kind of economic practice, but definitely um, that kind of individualism, I think, is long-standing. What's different, though, of course, is, is as the way that plays out under Sweden conditions and the way it plays out in the context of this kind of emergence of capitalism, that's really the key shift. I think it's also not unique to this place. Um, there's records in much of Southeast Asia from the colonial period in which colonial officials were often really alarmed by the propensity of Highlanders, who they thought ought to be proper peasants, kind of you know embedded in place, in love with their land, um, who actually, um, on several occasions, just went wildly into boom crops um, and ended up uh, in precisely this way, indebted, dispossessed, and moving off to another frontier. Um, so several people noticed that and wrote about it. So it's not an entirely new phenomenon, but it, it sort of does fly in the face of a lot of the current debate about indigenous people, for example, who are assumed to be, you know, solidly uh, in place since time immemorial and forever and ever. Um, I think the other... Uh, thing to think about here and the other kind of new element of the dynamic really is the closure of the forest frontier. So on another scale, um, you know, in the old days, this kind of thing could go on, but people could move off right, to another frontier. So what's happened, in, and historically in Southeast Asia, the ratio of people to land has been extremely low compared with India or China. It's been, you know, a quarter to a fifth, right? I mean, there's, there's just... It's been relatively land abundant and forest abundant. Now, this has really radically changed in the last two decades uh, because, on the one hand, of massive uh, enclosures for, planta for plantation agriculture, things like oil palm, which kind of gobble up huge amounts of land, tens of thousands of hectares, and also conservation. So, the, what was the open forest frontier to which people who fail you know, to establish themselves in one place could move off? really has uh, closed down. Often you've had nominal forests for actually since the colonial period, but this, with new kind of conservation funding, let alone now with these kind of, you know, climate change type funding, which is all about forest conservation. Like there's just tons of money now being thrown at making those forest boundaries hard. So I think the closure of the frontier is a kind of a historical element of this. 
um, which has really radically shifted the consequences of this process. Things like this might have happened before, but they didn't have this serious consequence. I think the other element is the question of labor absorption. That's something I've been writing about in other work. But um, you know, one of the kind of grand narratives of agrarian transition is as agriculture becomes um, capitalistic and more commoditized and so on, oops, it's true, some people will not survive in agriculture. But that's okay, because they'll find somewhere else to go and something else to do, right? And the assumption is, you know, they move to the city, they move into manufacturing, they move into other kinds of jobs. So you don't have to worry. You don't, you don't have to keep everybody on the land. Um, there will be casualties from this kind of transition, but, you know, they'll find other outlets. But that, I think, again, also needs to be rethought, because that's the narrative, again, which we've absorbed from agrarian transitions in Europe, where the uh, capitalist development of agriculture and the development of industry happened within one national frame often, right? So that it is true, you know, you go from here to there and the jobs are there. What's happening now, of course, is that in a place like Indonesia, um, there's almost no development of manufacturing. Indonesia is drastically outcompeted by China. So the jobs are being generated in China, but that's of no use at all to these people. They don't even speak Indonesian. They couldn't even go to Java, let alone China. So um, you, know, you have a kind, of, kind of a squeeze where that transition narrative, which assumes that people ejected from one place will be absorbed somewhere else, is radically truncated by these, this aspect of globalization, I think, is worth paying attention to, and it has to do with where is labor actually being absorbed and who, ac who has access to those jobs? And where are the places where exit from agriculture and ejection from agriculture is taking place, but labor absorption is not? Oil palm, as I discovered, absorbs only one person per 10 hectares, whereas rubber, the old plantation crop, absorbs three people per hectare. So just look at the difference in the ratio. Like even just the sort of happenstance of which crop comes in has a massive, makes a massive difference to whether there will be jobs in these kind of, you know, in, uh, the growing sectors of the economy. So I think this kind of transition um, that I've described is, um, it, it, I've described it sort of in detail in one place, but I think it's a wider phenomenon. Um, and one worth paying attention to. I think it's going to have all kinds of consequences in the decade to come.